0: Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Subral. Have you ever wondered why some sports like rugby union are immensely popular in some countries, but struggle to get a foothold in places like the United States? And what would it take to set up a professional rugby competition in that sport's great untapped market, the USA? Well, in this episode, we're going to look at the attempt to establish a professional rugby union competition in the United States to understand how sport managers can deal with institutional plurality. Joining us to discuss this is someone who's published several articles and devoted much of his research to the role of institutions in sport. He's associate professor in the Department of Health and Kinesiology at Texas A&M University. It's Calvin Knight. Welcome, Calvin. Whoop! Hey, good to be here. (laughs) Uh, I like that whoop. You were pumped up. I can tell. It got you going like a wrestler going out.
1: <laughs> it, it, it sure did. That's kind of what we do at ANL to get ourselves fired up for things.
0: Calvin and co authors Christopher McLeod, Zachary Baldin, and John Norwright recently published Establishing a Professional Rugby Union Football League in the USA Managing Institutional Pluralism in Sport Entrepreneurship. Calvin, when I was reading this, I was thinking, I could just imagine that research meeting when you said, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's look at rugby union in America. And uh, that would have been received with, uh, you want to do what now? But how does this research help us understand professional sport leagues?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I'm going to back up on you a little bit and tell you how the whole thing started. When I went to UNT, uh, so I was previously at the University of North Texas before I came here, and that's where... I met uh, John and Zach. Uh, John was my department chair and Zach was one of his students. And John was really involved with one of the local professional rugby clubs or aspiring professional rugby clubs. And he brought me into a couple meetings that they had because he was working, uh, he was doing a little bit of consulting on the side and just, he had a love for the sport, uh, largely stemming from his international background and his time that he spent in Australia. And so, he brought me along, and I was like, "Man, what is this? I don't." I don't so, so it was you that was saying, "You want to do what now?" Yeah, exactly. That was me. I was like, "What is this? I'm not, I'm not a rugby guy. I don't, I don't even, I don't get it." Having multiple meetings, I, they had trouble before trying to get it established, and they had some challenges. And I was like, I was sitting there, I was thinking through my own research. And I like, well, I have an idea of like why they've had some struggles, but we could do a full blown study on this. And when I reached out to Chris, we hit it off. And he had uh, some contacts because he had done some work with pro rugby. Uh, John's primary contacts were with uh, major league rugby people. And so before I knew it, I was studying rugby and now I'm on a podcast talking about rugby. And I'll tell you right now, my knowledge of rugby is very minimal, but it's been a it's been a lot of fun getting to know the sport because. I think the rugby fans and the the rugby people are so passionate about that sport. That I'm like, well, you know, that's infectious. I can, I can, I enjoy listening to people talk to things, talk about things they're passionate about.
0: And that's the really interesting point, isn't it here? Because you, you say you don't have to have a, a deep knowledge of the sport or even really have a passion for it, but you can still see the, the research uh, richness of it. What made you think that this is something that is going to give you some uh, is going to be important for the research that you were doing?
1: Um, when we talk about institutional pluralism, you know, basically the idea that you have the way things are done in one context, and then you try and translate that into a context that has its own way of doing things that you know provide you know a schema for how we interpret the world. Once you get that in-depth theoretical understanding, then to me, all it takes is just like that one aha moment in your context. and You're like, oh this works. And that one aha moment for me was during a meeting that we had with one of the execs. But he made a comment. He said that I, we don't really want to get involved with college sport in the U.S. We don't really want to do the NCAA. It turns out he was really the outlier in the whole data set that we had um, on that. But that's what started because I was like, well, that's not how it works over here. If you're going to do, you know, the the pathway for U.S., the traditional pathway is you can do some stuff in the youth sports, but then you start playing in in school. So, you know, secondary school, and then you go to college and you play your sport professionally there. And then that's where they pick us off, pick you off and you get to go play professionally. It turns out it sounded like he was like, well, we want to do more of what You know the club system is done in you know europe and australia and other countries it's like well there's your problem and so that's kind of that's what sparked the the idea and i was like well let's roll because i i know i can write that theory up all day long right now
0: i can see how that works because uh in australia and uh, the united states the europeans are all about promotion and relegation in, in football and other sports and in Australia and the United States, that doesn't work. That's not how you do it. You have to have finals. You don't have league champions. Uh, so you can see how all of this is, is quite relevant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, whenever you start taking what you understand in one context and you want to go apply it to another context, if, if the people in the, the receiving context, if the, the major stakeholders don't understand it, and don't have a cognitive schema even for how to
0: like how this thing works, then it's going to be some struggles. So that was your your theory there. That what we've just talked about. That's institutional pluralism. Uh, you defined that extremely well in in non-academic terms. What's the academic definition? What, what's the nitty-gritty of it?
1: Academically, uh, if you pull it from a theory is like uh, institutional pluralism is the the scenario where uh, you have organizations or entities embedded within multiple institutional spheres so if we understand institutions as more or less taken for granted norms uh, that provide you know meaning and understanding to daily life uh, they are resistant to change often self-reproducing it's more or less just the way things are done and if you are embedded in a situation and as the world becomes more and more uh, become smaller, really, you know, we become more transnational with all our, our corporations, but especially, you know, we see that in the sport industry, that you have leagues and, and players and people who are trying to, you know, become more international with what they're doing, the way you are embedded then inherently in multiple institutional spheres, and that is going to cause some issues. Um, we know from the literature that, you know, you have issues of inefficiency, you have you have issues of confusion, you know, like how, so who's doing what, how are we going to do this? And sport organizations, sport entities uh, have to figure out a way to make that work. Different areas that have different expectations, that have different, uh, often conflicting ideas of how to become legitimate. And that's the key point, right? Because if you aren't viewed as legitimate from an institutional theory uh, theory standpoint, then it's hard to get resources for survival. It's hard to get the support from stakeholders, and so if we have multiple competing ideas of how you need to become
0: legitimate, then you know which one do we go with? How did you go about devising the, the method to study this topic? Because I'm sure there's a myriad of different options.
1: You know, I was trained as a qualitative researcher, so whenever I start asking questions. Uh, whenever I start approaching problems and uh, studies, the types of questions I ask are very exploratory in nature. And so that lends itself well for, you know, various forms of qualitative research. Here we went with a comparative case study because we had two
0: cases, right? Uh, We had pro rugby and we had uh, major league rugby. Uh, Um, Just for those who don't know, those are the two competing attempts at, at the professional competition in the United States.
1: I wouldn't even say they're competing in as much as, They kind of did, but it was more of like one was like pro rugby started. They had one season and then they went under. And then MLR tried to come in and fill in that gap like immediately afterwards. We knew that we could get access to the people to talk to, which is generally the most difficult part. If you're going to do qualitative research in this regard is finding participants and finding ways to collect that data, getting them to talk. Fortunately, uh, John had contacts, Chris had contacts. So, and then we could snowball it out from there. And so we were able to, you know, get a good, uh, a good group of participants who could really speak to this. You know, there's all the documentation that goes along with it that is very good for supplementary data. You know, our method fit kind of what we're looking to study. And so it was just a natural, you know, we weren't trying to force anything in that
0: regard. So we're like, well, this makes sense. We can go talk to people. Sounds organic. Right. It sounds yeah. like. It, was it difficult to get them to talk about things? Were there some issues that were like, no, no, I don't want to go there. That's, that's, that's too close to home.
1: We didn't dive into much that was overly controversial. There were obviously competing perspectives when you start talking to a person who was a high up executive in a failed league. So that person had uh, certainly had some thoughts uh but that was rich data right it was very rich because you get multiple perspectives we ran into uh an issue with data collection that i've never i hadn't even heard of um and we had one participant who the challenge to get him to talk was he didn't want it he didn't want confidentiality or anonymity he wanted his name on it <laughs> we're like, okay so we had to go back we had to go back to the irb Like, well what do we do with this yeah <laughs> uh we're like well bro i don't know that I mean, yeah we'll let you you can say what you want i mean it's i mean it's not going to be overly magical because his was more of a supplementary perspective because he uh the guy's name is nathan bombries and he was uh he was an executive for one of the scottish rugby
0: teams in terms of what you found you know, what were the main issues in, in establishing the professional uh, rugby competition in the united states
1: Well, the first thing we found and we had to establish was are we truly looking at a pluralistic situation? And so we went through the process of developing, we call it an ideal types uh, type chart. So you can compare the logics, you can compare the institutional systems a little bit. And so that was the first challenge. The things that we found uh, when we started going down that road was that, you know, more or less we noticed two primary institutions that were uh, at work and it was one was traditional rugby and the other was the u.s pro sports and so if we look at traditional rugby we know that it is an international sport uh, that's ingrained with these values of respect camaraderie community um you know the the way the economic system of rugby across the world you know you have both in some instances, you have an open system uh, where you, need, like we talked about earlier, you have the relegation and you know the, that league structure. And but in you know even places like Australia and then in the U.S. right, uh, and we'll get to that in a sec. It's more of a closed system. Um, and also, we notice with rugby is like there's a heavy, there's a blurry line between participants and spectators. That it's very much a community-based yeah. thing. Whereas in the U.S., it's a little bit different, right? Our primary focus of what we're looking at is trying to maximize the experience for spectators and then we also you know looked at the U.S. as a purely closed economic system there's no relegation right Um, there is you are these are your teams if you want in you have to be voted in by the majority regardless of, of success or not you know if you're in you're in and so that we noticed that was a little bit different. When we look at how the leagues were gonna navigate that system, they already have, you know, some competing ideas, maybe not even competing is not the right word because that, you know, or just different ideas of what is, how to build a league, what it's gonna look like. And so, you know, we started with pro-rugby and, you know, the main finding that we saw was like, look, they, they basically only Amer- wanted an American view of rugby right? We want, you know, we're going to maximize profits. We are, you know, even when it came down to the rules, right? You know, we're going to find, we, we need to Americanize some of this, you know, and there's some, to make it make sense. And we're going to focus on that. And what we noticed was that they basically alienated the rugby community. You know, certainly Pro was able to get exclusive sanctioning through USA Rugby. And so that was kind of a good thing, but they didn't really you know, they're very the execs and is really headed by one. He was seeking legitimacy in a US, in a US system, right? He, he wasn't wrong. They weren't wrong in that regard, um, as we'll talk about when we get to the MLR findings. But he basically alienated the entire, like not the entire, but a lot of the rugby community that was already established here.. Like, and so once you lose that support and you run out of cash, and then nobody else wants to give you any more cash. Well, what are we gonna do? Well, you're gonna fold. And so you know, essentially what happened was rugby, pro rugby folded. And so, and then right in that, that created that gap for uh, major league rugby, which was largely comprised of a lot of the same people that were trying to do it in uh, more of a hybrid fashion if you will. And that was one of the big takeaways that when we'll get to the takeaways they all uh, operated as a single league entity structure, right? Because they're a franchise base, wherein you have the owner, and the owner operates in his economic bubble. And then they, as a part of the league, they do things to for competitive balance, like revenue sharing, salary salary caps, all that sort of stuff. Well, MLS started off Uh, major league soccer started off as a single entity where it was just the league owned everything and they would place the players for competitive balance in that regard mls or mlr rather excuse me they basically adopted that same idea Uh, but what they did is they did so more it was more of a collective group effort instead of one key person trying to spearhead everything and trying to control everything it was more of a collective approach and so you know, what they were able to do is they re-engaged the rugby community. And then they started, they took a hybrid approach instead of focusing solely on the spectators as spectator experience. They also recognized that they had to develop local talent and they developed that that baseline foundational infrastructure off of which they could build stuff. Because once you get the youth involved and you get people who've been playing it and understand the game, now all of a sudden you have a built-in fan base and you have people who understand what they're watching. And that is really, that, that's key, right? If you don't even know what you're watching, then how are you gonna invest and become a fan? And so they really did some things early on to try and like, look, we're gonna have to build a good foundation. If we're gonna be in this for the long haul, that was sort of the approach that they took as it was more of a high like, We are going to do American things because we are an American market, but we're also going to do things that make sense for rugby. We're going to maintain our focus on the traditional core values, We're going to engage the international communities and show that we are a legitimate within rugby, as well as being legitimate within the U.S. market.
0: Now, when asked this question, uh, you know, to me, I think it's the hardest question you can answer in academia. Uh, and I think to a lot of uh, people as well. But uh, my guess is you're relishing this question. How does this advance our understanding of the theory?
1: What it just tells us, um, and especially when we start talking about sport and sport organizations, is popular stream that we see a lot in the sport for development literature right now is this idea of you have to be you have to be hybrid at some level, especially if you're going to go uh, across institutional spheres. It's easier it, the easiest way to think about it is even international borders, right? If you're going to go if you're going to go international and you're going to go into new markets. Then you're going to have to one figure out what's going on in that market and how you can position yourself in that market, and then you're going to have to find ways to both to get support in the local market, but also have support from the key stakeholders that will continue to support your sport. And in doing so, uh, if you have that hybrid approach, I think that you would probably increase your chances of success because what we've seen is uh, Major League Rugby. I think they were on season three, and they were. They were expanding. They had a couple of expansion teams come in. So it looked like that they might have had a little bit of staying power. Now, the caveat to all of this is, you know, when COVID hit. So, when, you know, what leagues are going to survive, right? We've already seen a lot of the fledgling leagues, you know, basically have to go under because of COVID. But uh, virus pandemic aside, you know, it seemed like they had really started laying that foundation to where they had some real staying power. And so you can see like you have to be cognizant of if you're going to try and go build and go insert yourself into a new market that has its own institutions built into it. You have to understand those and you have to position yourself in a manner that you can maintain the support of the people back home, but you also make sense and can become legitimate in the new market.
0: You're a Seinfeld fan. I can see it. You got you got the Kramer poster on your wall. It's magnificent. So I'm going to give you kind of a Seinfeld scenario here. You're George Costanza. You've been promoted from assistant to the traveling manager to now someone who advises Steinbrenger and others at sport organizations. You're advising them. What would you tell them to do in this instance when they're facing institutional pluralism?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. I would say learn the local culture of where of where you're going into, wherever that's going to be. I'd say you need to Learn what is important in those areas and see how what you're offering fits within that local culture and find ways that you can incorporate what matters in the local culture into what you are doing in a way that makes sense that you can still maintain support back home, but you also fit with the locals. Because you need you need support from both, right? Because Folks in the established institutions are the ones that have put you in a position to be successful. That's where you have your resources, that's where you have your cognitive support, that's that's where it makes sense. So you need those resources to keep going. But when you go into the locals, they also have to find ways to connect and understand what you're doing and to see how what you provide is valuable to them in some regard. And if you can find a way to balance those things, And so you maintain some some trueness to your core of who you are, but you can also find ways to make who you are fit with your new context. I think that's that's the advice is that you've got to, you have to be able to do both. You have to focus on the importing and the exporting.
0: (laughs) Very good. Oh, that is magnificent. The Seinfeld quote at the end. I love it. It's brilliant. Uh, Calvin, thanks so much. That was was a fascinating chat and and really insightful. And and, and I think this is really important research for sport organizations just about everywhere in the world. Uh, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. At the Sport Management Review website, you'll find all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Establishing a Professional Rugby Union Football League in the USA. Managing Institutional Pluralism in Sport Entrepreneurship from Volume 23, Issue 5. That's it for this episode, but take a look. There's plenty more that you can download to your favorite podcast player. Until then, it's bye for now.